we did part one on surviving street epistemology. And I didn't get as far as defining epistemology. You might remember that I said, that's the next slide. And uh, I am going to define epistemology for you very, very soon. But um, we've had an interesting time this week because I put the uh, podcast up late Sunday afternoon and within five minutes of me posting on our Facebook page, we had a response. Guess who the response was from? A street epistemologist. And funnily enough, we've had more response to that discussion point than we've had to anything else we've ever done in the three and a half years or so that Ignite Life Church has been operating. I will say this about everybody who made a comment, they were all courteous, and uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. And actually, that is one of the characteristics of street epistemologists. They are never rude to anybody. And uh, I can say that none of the responses that we got were rude. Uh, They did want to engage in discussion, and I I did reply to a couple, but I don't really have time to... um, to get into very detailed uh, replies, because as you would be aware, I've got a full-time job. There were a couple of comments also uh, on SoundCloud, because we these recordings get uploaded to SoundCloud, and from there they are available on, uh, on iTunes. So we found it quite interesting that there had been a lot of response, and that the response came so quickly, within five minutes of me making this uh, recording available last last Sunday afternoon, and for me, see that indicates these people are onto us, as it were, that they are very, very keen to engage Christians and people of other faiths as well in discussion about the reasons why they believe. And it was interesting that some of the comments said, "No, no, 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 we're not trying to convert anybody because that's not what epistemology is all about. Epistemology is actually ways of knowing, and that's what they want to engage with." But then, what's the title of Peter Bogosian's book? Right? He clearly wants to. The, one of the words they use is deconvert, deconvert from Christianity to atheism. So I want to continue today with my discussion on surviving street epistemology. Because if anything, the responses we got last week indicate to me this is a very real thing. It's not something that I'm imagining, that there's a serious and significant movement which will probably have much more impact on Christians in the West, in the high-income countries, than all of the books that have been published by the militant atheists, some of whom I mentioned last week. I just want to very quickly review our definition of faith and of course this has been rattling around Ignite Life Church since early last year when we were talking talking on faith and uh, faith is firm persuasion. It's not an airy fairy thing. It's firm persuasion based on relationship with God through Jesus producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation of his truth. And, of course, his truth is revealed in his word, but you also get personal revelation when you meditate on his word, when you allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light on that word and teach you what he wants you to learn. Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you, show, how can you say, show us the Father? I mentioned that the Greek word 
which is translated faith, is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, which means persuasion, conviction, trust. And you might recall I did make the comment that modern translations of the Bible should probably use the word trust rather than faith. Because too often faith is equated with blind faith, faith without reason. So one way of rendering that word pistis would be active trust based on evidence. Active trust based on evidence. Last week I went through a couple of definitions of faith from the atheist's perspective. I just want to remind you of the definition that Peter Bogosian uses in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. Faith is belief without evidence and pretending to know things you don't. And as I mentioned last week, that really does not accord with the Christian definition of faith. Biblically, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God, a trust in what we have reason to believe. Faith is a response to evidence, not rejoicing in the absence of evidence. got some paper here. <laughs> Sorry. All right. That word pistis uh, occurs 244 times in the Bible. So it's an important word. In Hebrews 11, which is often referred to as the faith chapter in the Bible, where we've got the so-called heroes of faith, faith is defined as the assurance of things to hope for, the conviction, and some translations use the word evidence, of things not seen. So we don't necessarily see it. We don't see Jesus with our physical eyes today, but we have enough evidence to be assured that he lived, that he was who he said he was, and that through the agency of the Holy Spirit, we have relationship with God through Jesus today. Faith is not wishful thinking, but is based on evidence strong enough to give us assurance. Towards the end of our discussion point last week, I went through a number of reasons why we can believe Jesus. In other words, we can believe what he said. We can believe what he said about himself, that he was indeed the Son of God. And we can believe the works that he did as recorded in the Bible. We know, of course, the Bible itself says that there are 500 witnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection. We know also, historically, that numerous people wrote about Jesus. And some of that, of course, is recorded in our Bible. The Gospels, for example... Uh, 1 and 2 Peter, uh, most classical biblical scholars believe that it was uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, or the disciple Peter, who wrote uh, Peter 1 and 2. And he actually claims in there to have known Jesus Christ, to have walked with Jesus. So we have the record of witnesses. And uh, I'll come shortly to the evidence that we can trust 
the Bible as an accurate historical document. We see works. You know, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then he goes on to say, if you don't believe what I say, believe the works that I do. Because they also were a fulfilment of prophecy. Now, we see works today. I mentioned uh, last Sunday that I have seen miracles. I've seen physical changes in people's bodies as they have been prayed for. And we've got a testimony within our own church of what people might call a creative miracle. When Lizzie, who was visiting from France, came forward for prayer and she had been in pain for some 14 years, she felt as we were praying that her pelvic bones were being rearranged. And she came back the next day with a testimony that the pain was gone. I have seen x-rays, before and after x-rays, of a person who was healed of a back ailment. So instead of having to go for an operation, he stood in faith for quite a long period of time, and I've seen the x-rays before and after, and his, his, his doctor was actually there, sharing about the miracle. So I've seen works just like the works that are recorded in the Bible. And so for me, that is evidence that my faith is a reasonable faith. The Bible's internal evidence. Uh, rabbis, they don't all necessarily agree, but uh, rabbis argue that there are up to 456 Old Testament prophecies that apply to the Messiah. And of course, we understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. There are 68 prophecies that are very easily proven because there's direct evidence in terms of references in the New Testament to prophecies from the Old Testament. And I've got the full list of those 68 references if anybody is interested. I also mentioned last week there's a lot of archaeology. Archaeology is probably the strongest evidence of the historical truth in what we call the Word of God in the Bible. And, and as time goes by, there are more and more archaeological discoveries that verify the historicity, yes, the historicity of, of the Bible. There are flood stories, of course, in numerous cultures, and there are some external texts, although we couldn't expect there to be a lot of external texts that corroborate the Bible because not a lot of stuff was written down. Certainly in Old Testament times, most was actually carried forward through oral tradition. And uh, so we, we probably won't find a lot of uh, written evidence corroborating uh, the Bible. But nevertheless, there is some. And uh, for example, there have been fragments of the book of Isaiah discovered, and they bear a remarkable resemblance to what we read in the book of Isaiah today. And that's the case. So we're finding scraps of written evidence through archaeological discoveries, and they are surprisingly close to what we read in the Word today. So we can have a good deal of confidence that the Bible is historically accurate. We do understand that some of it is poetic in nature, but a lot of it is historical. And uh, we can be very confident that it is accurate. So therefore, if the Bible records something about Jesus, we can be confident 
That is true because of all of this corroborating evidence. One of my favourite points to make is that Christianity works. Christianity works. There is a lot of evidence today that suggests that the most civilising force on humanity through the whole of our history has been the Christian faith. And I think when you put that together with other evidence, that gives us more reason to have confidence in our faith. Now, I'm going to have to put my glasses on because I've got some fine print that I want to read. I did, I did mention briefly last week of the work of some, some writers, but uh, one, of, one of the ones I mentioned was a very... It's a big book. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and, and his son Sean McDowell. It's a new edition of the book. You can actually buy it at Coorong. It's only about $22, so it's not a very expensive, a very expensive book. That's a very good book. Um, but there's some other, I guess, slightly more, if you like, academic um, books that have been published in the last a little while. One of which, one, one that I like a lot is by Vishal Mangalwadi, whom I actually have met. His, uh, the title of his book is The Book That Made Your World. And his whole theme is how Christianity has framed a lot of the um, culture and uh, philosophy even of Western countries. His book's a big, thick book. It's a, it's a pretty substantial piece of work. But in his book, he argues that the West's passion for scientific method and technological advancement has roots in a biblical worldview. I think I've said to you before that Christianity is the only religion in which aspiration is a laudable thing. To aspire to something better is something which is actually encouraged in the Word of God. And if you look at the, the original um, Hebrew in uh, Genesis 1 through 3, you will see that there's, a, there's, if you like, a bias in those chapters towards the development of the earth, to take all of the resources that God placed in the earth, to steward them well, so that Eden itself would spread to cover the earth, so that the earth would be filled with people like God, and so that the earth would actually develop. And it is significant, I think, that the book, the Bible, starts in a garden and it ends in a city. I think there's a lot of symbolism there to indicate that throughout the path of human history, God's desire is that we would develop the garden into a city. So there's this whole theme of, of development, economic development and social development that runs through the Word of God, and it has made a significant difference to many societies today. He also... Um, seeks to demonstrate how the biblical notion of human dignity informs the West's social structure and how it interacts with those who hold other worldviews. How the Bible created fertile ground for women to find social and economic empowerment. A lot of people criticise Christianity for the way it treats women and there's no doubt that women have not always been treated well by Christians down through the ages. But nevertheless, if you look... Into the last few hundred years, Christianity has had a significant influence on the emancipation of women. He also establishes that the Bible has uniquely equipped the West to cultivate compassion, human rights, prosperity and strong families. 
The Bible also has had a significant role in the transformation of education. And I'm going to talk about reason in a moment. He also uh, argues that the modern literary notion of the hero has been shaped by the Bible's archetypical protagonist. So all the heroes of the Bible have actually had an influence on the way in which we do literature in the West. Another book which I've mentioned here uh, a little earlier in the year is by Greg Sheridan. He's an Australian journalist and he wrote a book called God is Good for You. And uh, another, it's another pretty thick book. But um, one of his arguments is that the Judeo-Christian tradition has created and underpinned the moral and legal fabric of Western civilization for more than 2,000 years. Yet now we have reached a point in, in both Australia and many parts of the West where Christianity has become a minority faith rather than the mainstream belief. And yes, he's, he's quite right on that. At this point of crisis for faith, the book, God is Good for You, shows us why Christianity is so vital for our personal and social well-being and how modern Christians have never worked so hard to make the world a better place at a time when their faith has never been <coughs> less valued. Wow. That's quite a statement. I'm not going to dwell on it because I've got some other things I want to, to share with you. Uh, another writer, uh, I, I'm fairly familiar with his work. I respect his work greatly. He's a sociologist. He works at, I think, Wheaton College in the United States, which is a Christian uh, university. But it, also, it is also one of the most highly regarded universities in the United States. And uh, Rodney Stark wrote a book some years ago, I think it was published in 2004 or 2005, called The Age of Reason. And he argues that Christianity led to freedom, capitalism and the success of the West for one reason. And the reason is reason. That it was Christianity that placed a very high degree of importance on reason, which has led to our, the way in which we do science, for example, the way in which we now approach education, that it was this commitment to reason that actually led countries out of poverty, uh, led nations out of the dark ages and established freedom, capitalism and ultimately the success of the West. This is just a summary of his book that I printed off last night. I've actually got his book, but I can't find it at the moment. Because uh, all, my, my, all my books are in big stacks on the floor in my study. And I just haven't got around to putting them in the bookshelf yet. Uh, mind you, it's nearly a year since I left my previous employment. And I still haven't got around to tidying up all my books. Um, I just want to also alert you to... This is a couple of highly academic articles. These are in refereed journals, which is the highest standard of uh, academic research work. Uh, one of them is the Stellenbosch Theological Journal and the other is a, journal, a book, actually, uh, which was published, I think, by researchers at the London School of Economics and Political Sciences, which, again, is one of the top institutions in the world. And uh, these papers are both studies of what's happening in Africa today. And what they've concluded, particularly with the growth of Pentecostal churches... There's been a significant shift in mindset and in behaviour which is leading to economic development in those nations. And in fact, they argue that 
Everything that the multilateral agencies like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, United Nations, everything they've done by way of funding development projects has not worked. Partly because of corruption, partly because of ignorance, partly because of power structures. But what is changing Africa today is the growth of the Christian church, particularly the growth of Pentecostal churches. Why Pentecostal churches? Because we actually believe in prosperity. But not only do we believe in prosperity, we believe in diligent work. This is not just a, an empty kind of faith that God is going to prosper me. How is God going to prosper me? He's going to prosper me through work. And so the Pentecostals have a very high, they place a high value on education, they place a high value on health, they place a high value on working diligently to better yourself, and it makes a difference. And these are, if you like, you know, cold, objective academics who are writing these works. So Christianity works. And uh, very briefly, I want to refer to China as well. Again, um, there's a, a, an economist, a fairly well-known Chinese economist, he uses the Christian name Peter now, Peter Zhuo, I think that's how you, you um, pronounce his name, but his, his Chinese name is Zhao Zhuo. I'm not very good at pronouncing Chinese names, but anyway. He, he did a study. He wanted to um, find out why is it, what, what, what's different in the United States compared with China. And after he did his study, he thought the only thing that can explain... The, the greater prosperity of uh, the United States as compared to China is the fact that Christianity is so much more prominent in their thinking and in their way of life. Now, interestingly, he was not a Christian when he came to this conclusion. But after he'd done his research, he decided to read the Bible, and after three months of reading the Bible, he became a Christian because he felt it was so convincing. And... Uh, he still argues that the major explanatory variable, if you like, in terms of the prosperity of the United States as compared with China is Christianity. In fact, he talks about the number of churches rather than Christianity per se. Another research article, again, this is research I'm talking about, stuff which gets into refereed journals, the highest standard applied in academe. In, in academe. This is from an article by uh, Brian Grimm, uh, another person I've met. See, I, I, I'm using people I trust or sources I trust either because I know the people or I know the sources. And uh, he's reporting on some research which was published in, uh, in a, an economic journal and was actually reported in The Economist, which is a very well-known uh, economics periodically that comes out every week and has been doing so for a couple of hundred years now. But um, the ongoing growth of Christianity and growth of China's economy may be related, according to a new study in the China Economic Review by uh, Wang and Lin, two uh, Chinese economists. They find that Christianity boosts China's economic growth. Specifically, they find that robust growth occurs in areas of China where Christian congregations and institutions are prevalent. Using provincial data from 2001 to 2011... Wang and Lin investigated the effects of religious beliefs on economic growth. Among the different religions analysed, they found that Christianity has the most significant effect on economic growth. There you go. So, 
Christianity works. That's my point. Christianity works. And I think that's a good argument for our faith. Because if it was a a faith based on a system that doesn't work, that keeps people in poverty, or that keeps certain groups oppressed, then it wouldn't be much of a religion, would it? But we know that our God wants to see all of humanity flourish, and so it's consistent if we observe that when there is a higher proportion of the population who adheres to the Christian faith, there's also higher levels of economic and social development. I think that is significant, and it encourages me on my own faith. There were two other things I mentioned in relation to to faith that many people possibly would not accept as legitimate reasons, but I think they are important. Because if you just think about your own life, you will think back on people who were significant influences on you. And uh, when I look back on my life, there were some people who significantly influenced the way I relate to the Lord and my understanding and acceptance of the Scriptures as being true. You see, when people we trust... Uh, themselves are Christians and have a strong faith, we do, to some extent, follow their lead. In other words, they have a degree of influence on us, and that is legitimate. And we will find that in many areas of life, that we will behave in the ways that our role models behave. And some of our role models might have been within our family, some of them might be outside our family. And there are a number of people who have had significant influence on my approach to faith. But I do think that's legitimate, I think, because we live in community and we do have role models. There are people we look to for guidance in our own lives. And the other thing, of course, and it's very, very powerful, is our own personal experience in our relationship with God. And people who don't share our faith, of course, may not be able to even understand what it means to have a relationship with God what it means to have that sense of personal revelation when you are meditating on his word and you know the Holy Spirit is with you, shining his light on the scripture, teaching you God's truth. That also gives us a confidence in our faith. Well, let me explain what epistemology is, hey, because this is why you all came to church today. Because I promised you I would. Actually, it's pretty simple. Epistemology is a big word, it's hard to say, you get a bit tongue-tied over it. It just means the theory of knowledge, especially regard to its methods. In other words, how we come to know things. Methods, validity and scope. And the distinction between justified belief and opinion. Of course, my point is that we are justified in our belief in God, in our faith. So knowledge, in a sense, is in that intersection between truth and belief. So that's all epistemology is. It's it's how we know stuff. That's all it is. It's a pretty simple concept, really, and it's part of philosophy. So what's street epistemology all about? Now, I've actually taken this from the street epistemology website, so I'm assuming that that's a relatively credible source and uh, you can just Google it and go and have a look. Street epistemology is the application of epistemology, the study of knowledge, outside of formal academic contexts. It's a fun and effective way to talk to people about what's really true. A conversational tool that helps people reflect on the reliability of the methods used to arrive 
at their deeply held beliefs. See, that's why having a reasonable faith is so important. The process of identifying, understanding and challenging belief claims by asking questions. Now, this, this is a bit hard to understand. is dialectically based, grounded in the Socratic method and enhanced by recent evidence-based advances from a wide spectrum of disciplines such as motivational interviewing, applied philosophy and cognitive behavioural therapy. Now, really all that's saying is they're using all the latest information about learning and knowing in their interactions with ordinary people, literally, on the street. So these people are generally very, very intelligent, well-educated and well-schooled in the technique that they use. So they're not silly people. They are usually very polite. They are knowledgeable. They've well and truly come to a place of understanding why they believe what they believe. And this is why I'm so keen to see Christians not only know what they believe, but also know why they believe it. Peter Boghossian, in his book, sets out a technique. Remember what he's trying to do is to deconvert people from religious belief and create atheists. Be kind, gentle, compassionate and seek no reward. Then he says, define faith as blind. Now, as I said last week, if that's the ground on which they want to argue, they've got nothing to say to us because we don't have blind faith. We don't have the same definition of faith. It's interesting, some of the comments that were made was, no, 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 we don't define faith, we just ask you what your definition is. But at least according to Peter Boghossian, one of the tactics is you've got to get on this ground of faith being a blind faith. Because if you can, can convince someone that their faith is blind, you've got a much stronger chance, of course, of convincing them that there's no point in being Christian. Avoid facts. They seldom persuade, and I think he's right in saying that. Avoid showing frustration. Deconversion takes time. And finally, avoid politics. Politics is a sidetrack. Stick to faith. That's particularly a comment in the United States, of course, where many, particularly evangelical Christians also have very strongly held political beliefs. So there you go. That's from the guy who seeks to lead the street epistemology movement, at least in the United States. That's the method. How do you defend yourself against it? Well, it's pretty simple, really. First, understand my faith is not blind. I've got good reason to believe what I believe. My faith is not belief without reason. There is reason. I went through a number of reasons. Individually, those reasons might not, might not win an argument, but collectively, when you look at all of those reasons as a collection, it gives you a good deal of confidence in the faith that you have. My faith is based on evidence that demands a response. That's the the sort of subtitle of the book by uh, the McDowells. 
and you, meaning a street epistemologist or anyone else with whom we're engaging, you can respond positively or negatively. That's your free choice. So we see we have the choice whether or not to respond. And just because someone is trying to talk us out of faith, someone doesn't agree with us, that's okay because it's their choice whether or not to take the full sum of evidence that I summarised a little while ago, it's their choice whether or not to take on a reasonable faith as we have. But the one thing you need to go from here today knowing beyond doubt is that you do not have a blind faith, not by any means. You do not have a blind faith. You have good reason to believe what you believe. I just want to show you a quick video. This is a video of a street epistemologist at work. And I, I almost didn't show this because it's perhaps a little bit unfair to the young lady in the, in the video. But I just want to show you, this is just one example of the, the technique. Well, I wonder how we might respond under similar circumstances, eh? But at least they're polite. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we don't always have encounters with people who are, who are courteous. But she could have responded in many different ways had she been more certain of why it is that she believes and exactly what it is that, that she believes. And uh, whether or not you might be able to talk someone around to your point of view, that's a moot point. I don't think that's what I, my point is, though. We need to be prepared because I think... This will have much more influence on the strength of Christianity in the West in particular than any of the books written by the militant atheists over the last 20 years or so because they don't call it evangelising, it's deconversion, but it's very similar. Because if you look at that video, some of you may have seen Ray Comfort's videos on, uh, on YouTube or on uh, Christian TV. He operates in a somewhat similar way, but obviously as somebody who really understands the Christian, the Christian faith. Anyway, it's just about, well, it's more, more than just about time for our, our community time, but just to um, finish off on a slightly lighter note, here's a little cartoon for you from Calvin.